It's Aspen Ideas To Go, the podcast that brings you compelling talks from events presented by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, we're taking you to the Aspen Security Forum in Aspen, Colorado. The forum is a gathering of top-level government officials, security industry leaders, and academics. It was held last week, shortly after Donald Trump made controversial remarks about rival Hillary Clinton and Russia. At a news conference earlier in the week, the Republican presidential nominee urged Russia to find 30,000 emails Clinton had on her private server. The New York Times called Trump's exhortation a call to conduct cyber espionage against a former Secretary of State. Trump says he was being sarcastic. At the Aspen Security Forum, Heather Conley touched on the issue. She's with the think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. When uh, a presidential candidate makes the suggestion that a foreign government attack, cyber attack, the United States, that should give us pause about the health of our democracies, the health of our societies. She says strong national security is indicative of a healthy democracy, and our democracy isn't at its healthiest. She thinks Trump's comments reflect the deep polarization in the United States today. Connolly spoke alongside Alyssa Slotkin. She's acting U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Their conversation, called The Russian Bear on the Prowl, was moderated by Time Magazine Deputy Washington Bureau Chief Massimo Calabresi. Besides reflecting on Trump's comments, the speakers discussed the potential for another Cold War, how Russia's economy is impacting its moves around the globe, and why cybercrime is changing the defense playbook. Calabresi begins with another piece of recent political news. Uh, Elissa, we are told that the federal government believes with a high degree of confidence that Russia is behind the theft of uh, emails from the Democratic National Committee uh, that were sub- subsequently uh, released by WikiLeaks, causing disarray at the first day of the uh, Democratic National Convention and forcing the resignation of the DNC's leader, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, what can you tell us about the U.S. government's assessment of the theft of those emails and Russia's possible role in it? Very, very little. Um, <laughs> Um, So I I know it is the topic du jour, and I am going to therefore start off by disappointing the crowd by saying, as other government officials have said, it's an ongoing investigation, so I'm not going to be able to get into the specifics. The FBI is handling it. That's their job. I'm happy to talk about, as we go through the panel, happy to talk about some of the behavior similar to this that we've seen in a separate context from Russia and other state actors. But uh, as for the actual investigation, I will leave that to the FBI. Well, eventually we will get to, to motivations and whether such an action would fit with what you described, the, the, the cyber interventions of Russia in the political affairs of other countries, um, and, and whether this is beyond that in some way. Um, but uh, let me uh, ask Heather if you have a particular opinion based on your reading of, uh, of what uh, Putin is up to here. It certainly fits a pattern. And this is we have to recognize what this pattern is. Cyber is used as a tool of statecraft, uh, and we have to remain very, very vigilant. I, I am a big person on thinking about anniversaries, and next year is the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution of 1917, so we'll reach for inspiration from Lenin. And if you, you probe with bayonets, and if you find mush, you push. We have some mush at the moment in our country. Uh, our democratic processes are full of mush, and that mush will be pushed and it will be exploited. And this is an exploitation, and we can talk further about other exploitations. Ask uh, 
the German foreign minister and the German government when a social media story, which was total fiction about a 13-year-old that was reportedly raped by a Syrian migrant. It was completely false. It went on for days. It's desired to stir the public. This is a pattern. Let me ask you, Alyssa, um, just generally, as, as Heather describes Putin's motives, they sound almost without outer limit. Um, is it your assessment of his uh, intentions worldwide that, in fact, wherever he finds a vulnerability, including uh, in the electoral process in the United States, that it would fit with his MO that he would pursue that? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Putin is pushing the boundaries on what ro Russian foreign policy um, is going to be about for the next decade. He is pushing where he thinks there's weakness. He's pushing to see how far he can get. And I think, as I think uh, our, you know, uh, Mr. Swan said at the beginning of this, he, there is this um, disgruntled feeling about how the, the end of the Cold War went for them. And I think Putin is playing on that with the public and his public. And I think he is looking for ways to sort of be a global peer competitor of the United States. Um, he wants the image of Russia to be that as a, a competitor and an equal. And he's pushing boundaries in order to do that in his near abroad, certainly, but also we see all over the world, Syria, South China Sea, lots of places. So we're going to talk about a bunch of different regions where things are, are very active. Obviously, Europe, the Middle East, uh, the Far East, as you mentioned, the South China Sea uh, news just this morning on that with regard to Russia and China. But as a sort of a, a public diplomacy matter, what is the proper message from the United States and its leaders in response to that? Not necessarily you know, disposition of forces, order of battle, but what, what, what should we be saying to Russia in the world? Yeah, so I think um, when, when Putin decided to go and attempt to annex Crimea, it really forced us to do some serious thinking about how we should approach Russia going forward. And the approach we've chosen to take, and it's not just a bumper sticker or a talking point, is strong and balanced. And you have to have the two of them. And the strong means the US and NATO have to have the capabilities they need in the right places to deter Russia. And we have to support partners, not our allies, but our partners, in building their resilience in response to Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova. That's the strong. On the balance side, it's absolutely holding open the, the idea that there are things of mutual interest that we should negotiate with and work with Russia on, Iran deal, Syria, if we could possibly do it, and holding the door open for them to rejoin the family of nations in international standing, a good international standing. We don't want to be adversarial with the Russians. That said, we can't stand aside while they push and illegally annex places and sow dissent in places um, and destabilize places. We have to have the sort of twin you know, deter and dialogue message. A balanced and uh, uh, you know, sober uh, approach and sober method. Not everybody appears to agree with you on that. Um, and without venturing too far into domestic uh, politics, I do have to ask you about the response uh, to the DNC uh, hack by the Republican uh, candidate. Um, for those of you who were traveling and uh, didn't see the news. <laughs> who are living uh, in a hole. Um, yeah. The, uh, I'll just read the lead from the Times uh, today. Donald J. Trump said on Wednesday that he hoped Russian intelligence services had successfully hacked Hillary Clinton's emails and encourage them to publish whatever they may have stolen, essentially urging a foreign adversary to conduct cyber espionage against a former 
Secretary of State. So I'll just toss it out for, for either of you. Is this domestic spectacle, or is, is a response like that in some way going to uh, affect our relationship, our, our posture uh, uh, with, uh, with Russia? Well, let me link your two questions together. I think we need to redefine national security as the health of our democracies. Former commanders, uh, joint chiefs of staff have said, you know, our health is about our budget and our economy, but how about our democracies and our institutions and our oversight? And I think this is linked because we're not an incredibly healthy democracy at the moment. We're deeply polarized. Our institutions aren't working the way they should be. And these can be exploited for populist means. So when uh, a presidential candidate makes the suggestion that a foreign government attack, cyber attack, the United States, that should give us pause about the health of our democracies, the health of our societies. What struck me, well, and I have to say, if, if Mr. Trump is asking that, could we find his tax returns in any of those cyber attacks? Because I guess it goes both ways. If you'd like those emails, I'd be interested in his tax returns. But, um, but this also gets back to the other thing he said that wasn't covered as much, and that's about uh, that perhaps he will think about perhaps the United States if he becomes president, recognizing the illegal annexation of Crimea. He would rethink sanctions. I hope he's aware that there is a, a movement within Russia that sort of a hashtag, we want Alaska back. Would he think about that too? But, but this gets back to influence, questioning the democracy. And this is, this is an attack on information, on fact, um, creating a parallel universe where you don't know what's truth and what's not truth. So a populace can make that truth become what they wish it to be. And that's what the Russian information campaign has been so effective in doing, creating an alternative universe where you're so confused, you don't trust anything. I don't trust the media. I don't trust elected officials. I trust what my friends are sending me on Facebook. That must be truth. This is the challenge that's in front of us. And the health of our democracies and how we attack that is how we'll be successful or how we'll be unsuccessful. And I have to say, yesterday was a huge example of uh, unsuccess of, of, of democracy, of American well, I, I, democracy. I have spoken to a few uh, uh, folks who feel that whether or not Putin is taking sides in the election, the larger uh, effort that fits with his uh, MO is simply to discredit our democracy. And that, and that generally speaking, uh, and this one for you, Alyssa, yeah. that, that it's a larger strategic goal simply everywhere he can to undermine the idea that the American system and the American view of democracy um, uh, is strong and resilient and, uh, and the best option uh, for potential allies, for our potential allies around the world. Is that an abiding part of Putin's uh, uh, effort? I, mean, I think that the Russians have had for years a doctrine of what they call active measures, of these steps to sow dissent generally, either on a specific issue or just to create chaos in a political system of a neighbor in order to cre create an opening for themselves. So I think Russia has a history of doing this, and they continue doing it. We, we certainly see them attempting to divide Europe. That's a huge goal for them um, because they think it, it gives them an opening. And part of dividing Europe is dividing uh, uh, sort of the views of America and views of our democracy and whether that's a model to pursue. Um, so I, I don't think, uh, as Heather said, there's definitely a pattern. 
separate from any incident that's happened recently, there is a pattern and it's part of their doctrine, which is fundamentally different, I think, from the way we approach military doctrine. Um, it's a, it, it, and it requires a fundamentally different approach than a, a conventional approach we had during the Cold War. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it, but this idea that somehow the Cold War is back, I would love to right. hit that one. Right. Well, I think it's what makes, uh, what Lisa was saying about the, the balance and the partnership, that's what makes the partnership, I think, uh, we can seek it. We can look let for me, it. It let, makes it so hard let me, let me because of that, that doctrine of frame, frame that up a little bit. The, 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 since December 91, the U.S. policy towards Russia has essentially been this, this hopeful notion that NATO's door is open, ultimately even to Russia, that it could serve as kind of an eastern anchor in Europe, uh, um, whole, free, and at peace. Um, you know, that model clearly uh, not operative. Uh, at this point, but as Alyssa says, um, Cold War 2.0, not necessarily uh, apt either. Um, so why don't we start with Europe and picking apart a little bit why uh, you, you think that's the case. Uh, as, as you've noted in our conversations, done SNAP exercises, built up troops. Let's, in fact, why don't we just start with a list of the things that indicate to you that Russia is actually on the prowl before we go to whether or not that constitutes a new Cold War. I don't know about on the prowl, but pushing boundaries for sure. And I think- Both um, in terms of hardware and, and sure. more than message now. Sure. Uh, you know, I guess when, when we think about it at the Pentagon, we think about capabilities and intentions. So on the capabilities side, we've obviously seen a significant modernization of the Russian military. Um, we've seen them invest more heavily in the Arctic, and we've seen them uh, build up um, and create a doctrine of these snap exercises, not predictable, um, suddenly divisions of troops on their borders, um, and using that sometimes, as we've seen in, in, uh, with Crimea, as cover for an invasion of another country. Um, so there's the, the sort of capability side that they've built up. Um, not to mention all the other what we call hybrid techniques, their use of cyber, their use of space, their use of propaganda, all these asymmetric tools that they use that are deniable, that are hard to see, that are hard to identify as indications and warning the way we usually think about seeing a, a buildup before an invasion. Um, they've uh, used that to great effect, not to mention uh, soldiers out of uniform, little green men as they're called, um, that we've seen them use in eastern Ukraine. So you have all of these uh, uh, capabilities that they've built up, and then you have this question of intent. With Crimea and eastern Ukraine, it was clear. Um, them going in to back up Assad um, without any forewarning, it sets a certain tone and it opens up certain questions about their intent. Their activities in terms of um, uh, engaging in a uh, extremely close proximity with U.S. forces, almost taunting U.S. forces, mm. it just leaves open these fundamental questions about intent. So when you mm. put those two together, capabilities and intent, it leads you down a road um, to an assessment that Putin has decided to take on a decidedly more aggressive foreign policy, and that deeply concerns us. Let's do Europe a little bit. Uh, are we, Heather, are we, are we appropriately postured in Europe for that threat? We've made an important step in the right direction. Uh, the NATO summit in Warsaw basically created what I would call the, the land component of an increasingly credible deterrence. 
And I think, uh, and I think the, the, the work of the NATO summit in light of the developments following the UK referendum was amazing. It, it went forward and there was a strong message of solidarity. No one makes it through the 134 paragraphs of a NATO communique. We read it so you don't have to. Um, but it, it's, um, there was a very strong message also on nuclear deterrence, which is, which is another incredibly important part. And also boosting part. our troops and the US Absolutely. commitment Absolutely. in the so putting, for, putting for boots NATO on the battalions, ground in, right. right, Estonia. And, so, uh, and, being the analyst, my criticism of it's a first step, the piece that we are really missing, and this is the piece of the Arctic, um, it's Russia's growing anti-axis aerial denial capabilities. Uh, the, from the Arctic and the Barents Sea to the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea to the Eastern Mediterranean, they're increasingly able to deny uh, NATO and US access to areas should we want to get in there. And we don't have an answer for that right now. We bemoan it. We have to rethink about where to preposition stocks uh, and forces uh, because of it. But we don't have an answer now. And the Arctic important because of resources and defense. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. The other component that's, that's not quite there yet is the maritime component. We're starting to get our hands around uh, the increase in Russian submarine activity. Uh, Anti-submarine warfare has to come back. And I'm very concerned, and, and Russian Defense Minister Shoigu had a statement, uh, I believe yesterday, or at least I read it early this morning. The Black Sea, I think, is going to now become a much more strategically dynamic region. We focus so much on the Baltic region for understandable reasons. That's where the Russian presence has certainly been the most dynamic. But now the, the Black Sea, I think, is increasingly vulnerable because of their buildup in Crimea, S-400s. But this is where events in Turkey over the last week and a half may start swinging us into a very new and challenging area. President Erdogan and President Putin are meeting August the 9th. Here you have two uh, authoritarian uh, leaders that uh, increasingly President Erdogan sees us as either part of the problem or not helping, and this is where the strong man let you know, me, mantra let me, can pull together, and I worry yeah. about the strategic implications. Let me follow right on that. I want to ask two getting towards your uh, region of expertise. Um, are we in danger in some way of Putin luring or seducing Turkey out of NATO um, uh, and into his orbit? Uh, and two, you said, well, I'll, I'll save the Syria friction question because our diplomacy is very active on, on Syria. And so the idea that he might, or at least some of the Russian forces might actively be seeking confrontation uh, with us there, uh, it seems worth unpacking. But let's do Turkey first. So I would just say, I mean, the, we all know that since um, the Turks shot down a Russian plane over their airspace back in, I believe, November um, of 15, the relationship between Turkey and Russia has been quite tense. Um, and they have reached some rapprochement in recent weeks, even weeks and months, which we think is a positive thing. It's definitely not a good thing to have those two states, um, especially their operators working so closely together, Syria and uh, Turkey. Um, so that's a positive thing. I, I just don't think fundamentally that Turkey is at risk of, of being sucked out of NATO. In fact, we have the opposite signals, particularly since the attempted coup. We've had nothing but positive signals from the, the Turkish military and from the Turkish political leadership saying, please stay with us, please you know, come and visit, engage with us, really <laughs> assure, trying right. to assure right. that the U.S.-Turkey relationship is strong and the NATO-Turkey relationship they, they may is fear, strong. They may fear their own, uh, their own leadership. But, but uh, that's one bright spot. Uh, so on the question of, of friction um, uh, with, uh, with, with Russian forces and the potential uh, confrontation there, um, um, 
how does that how does that jibe with our diplomatic efforts, and how does it threaten them? Yeah. So just to do an overview, and I know um, General Votel hit about that hit on this in his panel just a little bit, but the um, you know you have a situation where U.S. and Russian forces are working more closely in the same airspace than I think potentially ever in history. I was speaking with someone who was an old Cold War hand, and I was describing to him. Um, how, how close we are in airspace and working um, near the Russians, and the risk of miscalculation of accident is very high, which is why we have a flight safety memorandum of understanding with them to get at this fundamental issue of how do we deconflict from one another. It was vital um, back in September, October. So we do have um, engagement with the Russians on safety issues. As um, General Votel said, we call that deconfliction, and it, it benefits us um, more than anything. Uh, in, separate from that, the Department of Defense is not doing any military cooperation, collaboration, joint planning, joint exercises, joint operations, none of that. Um, and we remain, I think the Secretary has been very clear on this, skeptical about our ability to do so. Now, Secretary Kerry is engaged in negotiations at the political level on Syria. Um, it is clear that there is not a military solution to Syria. That means there's a political solution that must be had. And the Russians are going to be a part of that. They decided to throw their lot in last year um, with the Assad regime, the Iranians, Hezbollah, and a bunch of other unsavory actors. Um, they made that decision, and that made them a major stakeholder and responsible party in what happens in the future of Syria. Um, so they're going to be a part of any political transition. And the specter of suffering is so significant in Syria that I frankly respect Secretary Kerry very much for trying to hammer away at some sort of political deal. Um, a political deal has to come with the lowering of violence, humanitarian access for people, particularly in Aleppo, and this is a prescient issue given what's going on there today. Um, and it must come with a commitment to, instead of supporting the Assad regime and hitting the opposition, actually focusing on the terrorists they claim to be so worried about. Those things have to come into pass before we will consider greater cooperation, which is something they seek very adamantly. It's important to make uh, one point, I think, because in a discussion like this, it's very easy to say Russia's on the prowl, Russia's pushing here, Russia's dangerous there. The fact is, um, at home, they're quite weak, right? The economy is hurting. How much of what uh, you see Putin and the Kremlin and Russia broadly doing is from a position of weakness rather than strength, and, and how should that inform our response? First, Alyssa, then Heather. Sure. So um, I, I would say it's from, they're acting from a position of weakness. I think the combination of the economic sanctions after Crimea and eastern Ukraine, plus the low price of oil, um, has really hurt them. And you can see this borne out in the numbers of foreign direct investment and a bunch of other economic standards. Um, and I therefore think that there's a heightened interest by the political leadership in Russia in talking about conflicts abroad, in championing conflicts abroad. I think that that is a tactic we know well from our Cold War history. Um, but the other lesson we, I hope we have learned from our Cold War history is not to overestimate the competitor. Um, I think we were at fault um, for thinking that the, the Soviet Union was this um, amazing, uncrackable empire. And there were many places, particularly in the US government, that just fundamentally did not predict the fall of the, the Soviet Union. And I would, I would offer that we should be taking those lessons, those analytic lessons, and applying them to Putin's Russia today. They are not um, unbeatable. They are not operating from a position of strength. 
In some ways, that makes the situation more dangerous. So I don't want to laud this as a positive thing. It is not good that the Russian people and their economy is suffering. Um, but I just want to be clear about the analysis. I, I do not think they're operating from a position of strength. So I, I think there's a, there's a general misunderstanding about Russia's economic weakness. Clearly, uh, the drop in uh, energy prices, commodity prices, has, uh, has done an enormous amount of damage. The sanctions served as an accelerant. Sanctions in some way denying Russian businesses access to the international financial uh, system is probably the most devastating part in the long term. But for the last two years, they have stabilized. And in fact, if anything, using this to uh, invoke a survivor's mentality. And, and this is where I think we, sort of the, the, the mythology is, oh, they're so weak, they can't possibly sustain operations in Ukraine and Syria. They, uh, I, I think we misunderstand that they are now in a prolonged period. Uh, they've stabilized enough. In fact, the last two years, you know, loyalty has been secured by the inner circle. They're managing this, and, and President Putin is settling in for the long haul. So I, I think there is a, a long-term uh, issue here of instability that we think will just can't last, and that's absolutely not right. I agree, though, this is an expression, in some ways, of Russia's long-term decline demographically. Uh, it cannot diversify or modernize its economy. And this, there had to be a breakout moment where it would be, uh, Russia would be recognized as an equivalent a power to the United States, that it would be taken seriously and with respect on the international community, something that it has not believed it has received for the last 25 years. You will take me seriously. I have a serious military, and I will show you how serious it is. <clears throat> you cannot solve any international problem in the U.S. unless you come to Moscow and you negotiate it with me. And that returns that uh, national identity. Russia lost its national identity at the end of the Cold War, and he's recreating it very, very effectively. But he needs more crises to mobilize the community. And this is my concern, and actually, to, absolutely to Lissa's point. If you have to mobilize your population to be on a war fitting, footing to be in survival mode, you have to create the wars. Okay. You have to keep feeding that. And that's the instability that we're going to okay, see. Okay, so questions. Thank you. Uh, Margaret Warner from the PBS NewsHour. Alyssa Slack, can you spoke about what the Russians call active measures mm -hmm. that they're using to undermine democratic systems and cooperation in a lot of the neighboring countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, but in France also? And you said this is a really part of their doctrine it is not part of ours. We need new measures to counteract that, and we don't have them. Well, what would they be? So it's a great question, and, and this is a, a perfect entree into the, the bigger philosophical question that, that is sort of, are we in another Cold War? Should we be in another Cold War? And um, I, I reject it because of the fact that the, the doctrine that the Russians are using is so fundamentally different from what we saw in, you know, during the Cold War. Um, they, they are using these techniques and they are challenging um, not just the United States, NATO, but also civilian institutions and their ability to react, right? In most countries, cyber issues, cyber crime, propaganda, propaganda counter-propaganda, it's handled by domestic agencies, by civilian agencies, not necessarily the ministries of defense. So it's exposed these seams between defense and interior industries or uh, sectors. Um, so what we've sort of determined is that we need what we call a new playbook, that the Cold War playbook doesn't work, 
Um, and it doesn't work for this kind of threat, and we need a new playbook. And that means our contingency planning that the military always done, does for emergencies, they're based on models that are not the thousands of tanks rolling through the fold of gap. They are hybrid propaganda little green men. Our scenarios have changed. The integration of fields. So it's not just what are we going to do conventionally. It's how are we going to mix conventional forces with cyber response, with space response, with counter propaganda response. It's forcing us to come up with a different model. Um, it, it is about, um, uh, frankly, reorder, re reorienting how we think about intelligence collection on this threat. Because it's not, you know, it's not counting tanks and seeing where they are near the borders of NATO. It's saying, I'm seeing a cyber attack in this Baltic state. Is that the beginning of a soft invasion? It's saying, I'm seeing this manipulation with this Russian-speaking community in this place. Is that an indication and warning? And there is, um, that is a, a revolution, I think, in how we have to see threats coming from Russia. So it's about this new playbook, and we, we're very open about it. We've had to adapt. Um, and we've done a lot of work in the two years since Crimea to adapt that playbook to something that's being presented to us by Vladimir Putin. Hi, Gail Harris with the Foreign Policy Association and a former Cold War warrior. <laughs> the question is this hybrid warfare, which not just Russia is using, but China. President Reagan put out the word that what the war fighters had to do when they came up with a new plan, they had to go war game it at the war colleges, and then you had people like me playing the bad guys. <laughs> Have we looked at war gaming to help us out with uh -huh. hybrid warfare? Yeah, so we love our war gaming at the Department of Defense. Rest assured, you cannot imagine. You might even be concerned by the amount of war gaming we've done on these scenarios because, as the last questioner mentioned, it's just so different for us. Um, so we have done, this is what I'm talking about when I say contingency planning. Our contingency planning is based on a number of wargaming scenarios that showed us what we think the most likely invasion scenarios are, and they're not traditional. So we have done significant wargaming on different scenarios. Right, thank you. Um, uh, John Scarlett, former head of uh, MI6, um, our representative in Moscow in 91 to 94. <laughs> so there's a great deal of expertise that you're displaying here. Uh, uh, you're quite right to repeat the importance of being seen to be the equal of the US. Uh, uh, although, in fact, I think the economy of Russia is smaller than South Korea or Canada. That there is this a fairly fundamental point, in spite of all the very good points there. Quick question, I know we're coming to an end. Uh, what message do you think the US, which is what Vladimir Putin is thinking about, what message is he getting about U.S. policy, U.S. attitudes, U.S. sort of firmness, if you like, maybe, uh, into the future. Because this business of getting the balance right between being strong and open to dialogue is very open to misinterpretation. Do you mean also with regard to whether or not we'll stand by our NATO allies, for example? <laughs> well, I'll steer away from that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so. If I may, leaving, leaving that sort of aside, just the, you know, the message coming out now from you know, uh, the administration since Crimea and so on. Yeah, it's a, it is going to, to be honest, I think you've hit on the fundamental question that the US government is gonna be facing for the next decade. How do you get the balance right? Are we being too charitable and giving them too many opportunities to come back to the table? Or are we um, providing such a high level of deterrence that we're potentially provoking them?
right? That's the fundamental question right there. And I think, I hope, that the message that Russia is receiving now is that we want to talk to you. We'll send John Kerry to Moscow. We are open and we are ready to talk. And I think he, no one is more open than John Kerry to talking um, with the Russians. Comment on that, I might. But, and if that were the only thing we were doing, then that would be a concern. But as we just said, at the NATO summit, we, ha we have the movement, uh, the greatest number of NATO forces to the eastern flank of NATO since the end of the Cold War. We've put a division's worth of equipment and soldiers back on the European continent. Um, and I think Russia understands that we want to talk with them, and they also understand posture and presence of US and of NATO. And I, I hope that we are getting that balance right. But that is the fundamental question, because I don't think you can have one without the other. You just can't keep talking if they don't actually believe that you're capable of fighting, quite honestly. And it's a sad truth. So you got to have them both, but you're at risk every day of getting out of whack. Okay, that is the right note to end on, and we are out of time. Thank you very much uh, to both the panelists, and thank you for the question. Alyssa Slotkin is acting U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. She was on stage with Heather Conley, who serves as Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Time Magazine Deputy Washington Bureau Chief Massimo Calabresi moderated the conversation at the Aspen Security Forum last week in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about the Aspen Security Forum at aspensecurityforum.org. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.